This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black Left perspective. I'm Glenn Ford, along with my co-host, Nellie Bailey. Coming up, the struggle for adequate quality food as an important part of Black self-determination. The fight against mass Black incarceration opens a new front in New York City. And Venezuela is in an epic battle for socialism and national independence against the almighty dollar. But first. The New York Times earned praise and some criticism for its recent 1619 project, a series of essays on the first black slaves imported to Virginia 400 years ago. We spoke with Josh Myers, a Howard University professor of African-American studies, who delivered a lecture on the arrival of the first Africans in Jamestown. The question we posed to Myers was, if the arrival of blacks as slaves in British America is viewed as the beginning of the black saga, then the European colonial assault on Africa and most of the world is not part of the history. Black American slavery and oppression is depicted out of context. Absolutely. And so the one thing I would point out and emphasize is that that lecture actually preceded the publication of New York Times Magazine on the 1619 Project by about two or three weeks. And so in many ways, the organization appealed that invited me to give that talk. We were all anticipating what that would become. And so what is ironic is that, you know, we did the lecture on in late July. Uh, the 1619 Project comes out a, a few weeks later. And then another group, Africa World Nine Project, actually publishes the lecture. And the way that it entered into the world, it was almost as if the lecture itself was a response. But in many ways, it preceded it, and it still works as a response because these things can be predicted, right? The 1619 Project is an attempt to bring in slavery to a pre-existing American narrative. It is not a disruption of American exceptionalism. It is not even a critique of American exceptionalism. It is an attempt to fold slavery into American exceptionalism. And if you do that, the only thing that you can do from that particular point is see the United States as inevitable. And in 1619, that wasn't true. In the 100 years where African presence preceded 1619, the United States is not inevitable. And so we can't kind of fold that into that narrative without losing a lot of context and losing really also a tradition of resistance that is found in 1619, but it is also already here. And that black people, Africans who are put into this particular process in 1619 or in 100 years, 200 years after that, they were not seeking to become American. They were seeking to be free. And I think that's the narrative that the black left, black radicals have to assert because otherwise we just simply become part of a really uncomplicated narrative of American exceptionalism. I think the conceit is that the liberals who have pushed this project see it as changing the narrative, but I don't. I just see it as an attempt to fold 
black history or the history of slavery into an unchanged narrative, an unchanged narrative fundamentally, because it's about the inevitability of the United States project. And furthermore, it is a liberal democratic analysis at its core. And so there is no attention to the radicalism that African presence brings to this project of settler colonialism through Maroonage. You know, there was one poem by Taya Himba Jess on Maroonage, but that was really the dominant sort of black response to settler colonialism. And further, there is no sense of all the different traditions of revolt that accompanied our presence on uh, these shores. And so to me, it, it becomes very useless without those narratives at the center. Yes, projects like these rationalize U.S. slavery, rationalize the conquest by Europe of much of the world, and almost collectively say that all of the crimes that were committed in this process were worth it because well, in 1776, there'd be some declaration that all men are created equal, and that would be worth it because we would get a Civil Rights Act in 1965, and so on and so on. Right. I mean, that's how I see it, right? And so you can't change the founding of this country or orient the founding um, in 1619 without also thinking about the entire Western Hemisphere, and not just the Western Hemisphere, but the entire world. You know, what does the world look like for African people? And I think it almost sort of orients us to, to kind of see those 20 and odd Africans who end up in Virginia as moving towards a sort of American democratic presence, which still doesn't actually exist. Yes. And what of this Africa that is behind them, never to be seen again, totally destabilized right. by the Europeans? Right. And so even if we do accept the American narrative, right, there's also happening in southern and South America. This is what's happening in the Caribbean. This was also happening in North America, which is not only the British. Right. And so African people understood that in that particular time. In fact, as someone who we probably both know, Gerald Horn always talks about the enemy of our enemies was our friend. And so sometimes you had to ally with the Spanish and sometimes you had to ally with the French, not because you love the Spanish or the French, but because there was a territorial conquest between those colonial powers that African people used to their advantage. What happens to that narrative when we get to the sort of 1619 as the inevitable evolution of American identity, right? And so, yeah, absolutely. Yes, in your lecture, you make comparisons between the finance capitalists of the Italian city-states like Genoa, where Christopher Columbus came from, and today's yes. finance capitalists uh, that we yes. at Black Agenda Report call the lords of capital. I mean, finance capital is the origins of this. I mean, I follow Oliver Cox on this a lot, the great Trinidadian sociologist who spent the balance of his career thinking and writing from Lincoln University in, in Missouri and challenging a lot of this with his trilogy on capitalism that he publishes in the 1950s. Without finance capital, none of these projects actually work. And the same, like you said, the same finance capitalist structure and infrastructure is what really feeds American capitalism, global capitalism today. And you see it reverberating in terms of how those structures then politically orchestrate everything from Trump's policy around immigration to the sort of extraction of resources that feed the industrial world today. All of those have, of course, implications for how people of color, working class people all across the world live their lives. I mean, it's still finance capital that has to be understood. And I think too often 
our movements don't think about the banking industries and the insurance industries and how not only were they complicit, which, of course, we need to kind of hold them to the reparations fire, but they continue to be complicit in the ways in which people live today. Yes, and it's more than just being complicit. Capitalism itself evolved under these conditions, which they created, of rapacious seizure of property and the torture of human beings under industrial slavery conditions and the securitizing of whole lots of human beings, just like properties are securitized. Yes, you're right. I mean, there is no capitalism without what we've just described. And so I also think about, of course, how the religious institutions, the church, as well as educational institutions like the university, help produce these antagonisms as well. Like they directly benefit and help produce uh, these antagonisms. So if you live in the modern world, you live in structures that are created by this interdiction of African life by Western civilization. And that evolution has to be understood. And I think If we talk about 1619, a lot of that gets obscured, right? We miss how this process actually unfolds with the modern era. And so there's a lot of scholarship as well as radical activism that acknowledges these particular connections that we should honor as well, that we should think with as well. Yes, and you do honor that other scholarship. You refer to Dr. Cedric Robinson and his thoughts on the 1,000-year-long process that led to what we call modernity and the age of discovery, a euphemism for colonial conquest, of course. Absolutely, which if you read the K-12 textbook that our children are learning from, that becomes a step forward for humanity, right? Uh, that's how they frame it, the, the age of discovery with Magellan and other uh, discoveries, that this benefits you know, all of humanity, and we know that's not to be true. And so we have to really understand that particular moment. I think Cedric Robinson, whose work you know, I've been reading and teaching for almost 10 years now, I'm working on a book on his life literally at the moment, that thrust that he has in black Marxism, and not just black Marxism, but in other works, like the Terms of Order that he published in 1980. You know, this work helps us really orient us to understand that this is not just a reaction to what happens in the 17th or the 18th century, that the 17th and 18th centuries are the culmination, really, of a long process that really emerges out of the Dark Ages, or what, European, what they call the European Dark Ages, and the whole idea of Western civilization, the whole idea of Europe itself, right, is at the center of the antagonism that then recreates the modern world, that then recreates race, that then justifies the age of discovery, that then produces slavery, that then produces colonialism, that then produces everything else that we're struggling against today. So we're seeing the whole narrative that we see in history books and reflected in modern-day political commentary as a kind of rationale of crimes, a kind of saying, again, that... It was all worth it, despite the death of millions, because Europe got rich, and so did white folks in the United States. Yeah. Well, you see it, right? So you have today liberals who will say slavery was bad, but the Civil War solved it, right? Or they will say, at least uh, we got the enlightenment out of, (laughs) you know, the antagonisms of the modern world. And so liberal ideology, right, requires that we rationalize It requires that these sort of deep contextual conversations that we are having be negated. And ultimately, again, this narrative of progress, 
that is inserted into conversations about the modern world get to replace the conditions of that progress, which of course is the attempt to dehumanize Africans and other people of color throughout the world, as well as the material expropriation of their labor and the extraction of their lands into the orbit of imperialism, which of course we can't talk about liberalism without talking about that and actually truly understand liberalism. Well, of course, this narrative is well deeply entrenched, including in many black institutions. Absolutely. And so, yes, you know, I work at Howard University, and we have to challenge it here probably even more sometimes because of the ways in which a Negro petty bourgeois class has emerged to also justify and rationalize, you know, these structures. It is almost as if they believe that this is the best humanity can do. And so we have to find our space in it. Rather than thinking about the revolutionary tradition of African people who never accepted the terms of this world, who always resisted it, whose children and descendants continue to resist it. And so we try to bring that conversation in the Black Studies Department at Howard University to our students because they are heirs to it, whether they want to accept it or not. Now, as you said, you delivered this lecture before the New York Times 1619 Project was distributed to the public. In reading at least some of those essays, do you think any of these scholars did a plausible job? I think Tayyahimba Jess's poetry is really the high point for me. You know, I edited A Gathering Together, which is creative writing space on the Internet. And so we use the artistic imagination as well to sort of help us, you know, think through this world. And I think Jess's work is in line with that tradition. I think there are useful conversations. The piece, you have to forgive me, I'm not remembering her name, but the piece that the sister wrote on banking is useful. Brother Khalil Gibran Muhammad's piece, you know, it has limitations, but it's also very useful, the piece on sugar. But I think probably the most dangerous piece is the lead piece by Nicole Hannah-Jones, because it sort of becomes, she sort of orients the whole thing around her sort of sense of patriotism, right? And so that's the frame that she uses to sort of enter into this conversation about slavery, which is very incongruous to me, because it rereads black history as a history of loyalty to the United States. And I think that's a dangerous proposition. It's always been a dangerous proposition. And quite frankly, she is part of a tradition that goes probably at least to the 19th century with newspapers like the Colored American that sort of attempted to show loyalty to the United States as a way to generate space for a black elite. And we know it doesn't work. They discard those individuals as quickly as it becomes time that they don't need them anymore. And so I think it's a dangerous proposition for us to entertain. But there's always been folks who organize themselves or organize their thoughts in that way. And it's historically incorrect. Far more blacks fought against George Washington and his forces and with the British because the British promised freedom. This is one of the things that Professor Horn writes about very beautifully. It is also one of the things that that when we teach it in class, it helps our students understand themselves better, right? Because if you just do the straight numbers, right, you know, somewhere between 5,000 fought on the side of the Americans. Most of them come from the north. Somewhere around 15,000 fight on the side of the British. But the fact that I think is even more informative is that some estimates say that around 30,000 decided to fight for neither. And those 30,000 simply escaped and they went to live on their own terms, which is really, to me, if you look at the entire African diaspora, that's what black people actually wanted to do. They wanted to live against the terms of this world. 
And if we want to find inspiration, there it is. Right. That was Professor Josh Meyer speaking from Howard University in Washington, D.C. U.S. sanctions against Venezuela are ravaging that country's economy and have already caused the deaths of at least 40,000 people due to shortages of medicine. Millions of Venezuelans have fled the country's deteriorating economic conditions. Nicholas Evan Ayala is co-editor of Anti-Conquista, a journal that defends the Venezuelan revolution. We began our conversation with Ayala by asking him to translate the publication's title, Anti-Conquista. So Anti-Conquista is essentially anti-conquer, like anti-conquering. And what we really want to mean when we say anti-conquista is anti-imperialism and the goal of uh, liberating Latin America and really all of the third world from empire, specifically the U.S. empire. Earlier this year, you wrote an article titled, If You Are Anti-Maduro, Maduro being the president of Venezuela, then you're anti-Venezuela. And right at the top, you featured a Venezuelan who claims that she's a progressive, but the charges she makes against Venezuela are the same ones that Trump makes and that all the other anti-Venezuelan forces in the U.S. make. And those charges are made by lots of people here who claim to be progressives. Yes. And so those charges are basically charges of the U.S. empire, and which is why you see both Trump and progressives making the same claim on Venezuela, specifically on Maduro. You mean they might claim to be Democrats as opposed to Republicans, but they're still wedded to the idea and reality of a U.S. empire. Exactly, yeah. And it's surprising to see a lot of these Democrats as well, kind of seeing the same thing right now with Syria, but a lot of these Democrats pretend to be anti-war, pretend to be pro-humanitarian, or believe in somehow the, the humanitarian interventions of the U.S., yet they fail to see how every intervention that they are advocating for is really one of, first, it's one of regime change, and second, it follows a long history of U.S. decadence and U.S. evil when it comes to our interventions in other countries, uh, leading to the deaths of millions millions of people. You know, after 20 years, it becomes rather tiresome to keep having to refute things like Venezuela doesn't have democratic elections. When Venezuela's had more democratic elections than any other government in this hemisphere, maybe the world, in the past 20 years. Exactly. And a lot of the claims you hear against Venezuela, especially against Maduro, are that he doesn't have democratic elections. And not only that, but also he doesn't have the popular support. But in all the elections in Venezuela, we see that not only are the elections democratic, not only are they fair, but they also overwhelmingly, the people overwhelmingly support Maduro. He, the last election he, they had, he won with over 60 percent of the vote. And that's extremely significant considering our president didn't even get the popular vote. Yeah, he still won. From your sense of what's happening inside Venezuela right now, how much of the population supports this blockade, which has denied the country currency to pay its bills? Right now, it's, it's interesting, the politics internally inside Venezuela, because the vast majority of the country does not support the blockade. Even the opposition, which has recently 
struck a deal. Um, some of the opposition members have recently struck a deal with the Maduro government, and they've actually come out. These opposition members have come out and rejected the U.S. blockade. So we see both on the Maduro side and the opposition party side a rejection of U.S. sanctions. And the reason is because both sides acknowledge and admit that these sanctions are ultimately killing Venezuelans. They're destroying the economy, they're destroying the health sector, and they're causing serious damage to the society. So no one wants these problems, you know, not the right-wing opposition and not the Maduro government. So overwhelmingly, it's, it's rejected by the Venezuelans. Now, we're all familiar with those who run away from the revolution. Uh, we saw in Cuba the white upper classes leaving for Miami. And we saw the upper classes in Venezuela transplanting themselves after the Chavez government was in power. But with this blockade, we see a different type of exile. Many of them are poor people, people who were poor before the blockade. Yeah, so a lot of these exiles, too, again, there's no doubt a, a economic crisis in Venezuela, but we have to, again, look at what was the root of that economic crisis and where was those sanctions came from. And, of course, you know, when you have a country which struggles to basically keep up its debt payments, which means that it's going to have high inflation, that inflation is mostly caused by the United States, who is gouging the, the currency, specifically the Bolivar currency, to the U.S. dollar. Those gouges in, in the currency are going to make it extremely difficult for the government to be able to pay a, a minimum wage to its people. And when that difficulty occurs and poverty ensues within society, people from all different classes will be trying to leave the country in order to send back money to be able to feed their families and basically help their families. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that these people don't support the Maduro government, but what it does mean is that there is an economic crisis caused by imperialism, which has led to, has created this necessity for people to flee and flee in hopes of basically a better life, for hopes of getting some more money. What's interesting is that what you don't hear the mainstream media talk about often is that even though that there's this crisis in Venezuela causing people to flee, there's also many other crises throughout Latin America caused by capitalism and in even more an extreme form. If you just look at you know, Honduras or Guatemala or El Salvador or Mexico, all those countries are facing a problem just like Venezuela, but to an even more extreme where violence is out, violence is chronic and it's basically a disease to the society forcing people to flee constantly on a daily basis. Yes, and in terms of those Central American countries, one can make a very good case that the United States destroyed those societies, especially during the 80s. Exactly, yeah. And that's also a big cause of the problems that those societies are facing today, especially when it comes to immigration. Now, the corporate media here in the United States are very smug in saying that the pink tide has been reversed in Latin America. And they point to Ecuador and Brazil and Argentina and the setbacks that left parties have experienced there. But if the United States invaded Venezuela, some of us believe they'd see a different kind of reaction from Latin Americans. I mean, I would completely agree. I think that the mainstream narrative that the pink tide is dying off is completely false. I really think that it's, it's actually quite the opposite. If you go to Venezuela, you'll see overwhelming support for Maduro, not only in the cities, but also in the countryside. Even people who don't 100% agree with everything Maduro says, 
still support the Bolivarian Revolution and, and still support Chavez's legacy. So in Venezuela, you know, there's a huge disconnect in the reality between what the mainstream media presents and what is actually going on. And I think the same is true for all of Latin America. I mean, we could look at the current protests against Lenin Moreno in Ecuador right now, which are against the neoliberal IMF austerity measures he was trying to implement, showing that people still support these pink tide movements, which were left over from the early 2000s. And the same could be said for also Argentina. Again, huge protests against the IMF support for a new populist president and vice president, Berto Fernandez and, and Kirchner. And the same, you see all these revolutions, all these protests happening throughout Latin America, which demonstrate that pink tide is still not gone. People still want a populist government. People still want social reform. But how do you feel when you hear folks like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others who seem to be putting forward uh, progressive domestic positions, but sound very much like Trump when it comes to Venezuela. Well, I think those particular policies are are interesting. Again, I always see it as there's the empire, so there's the foreign interests of the empire, and then there's the domestic interests of the empire, which which tend to be two different things. The foreign interests of the empire seems to, all politicians seem to agree, ultimately, whether they be Democrat, whether they be Republican, or or, or even now the, the more radical progressives, they all seem to agree, ultimately, that the U.S. needs its empire in order to survive. Now, in terms of domestic policies, what they hope to achieve domestically differs. But I think what my concern really is, is more so the international politics. So when I hear people like AOC or or even Bernie Sanders talking about Maduro and using the same rhetoric, using the same discourse and language as Trump does, I find that ultimately they're serving the same class interest, which is the elite class interest of the United States empire. And I find that extremely problematic, especially when you're trying to build up a working class in the United States and you say that you support the United States working class, but then turn around and turn your back against the working class of other countries, particularly black and brown countries. And I think what we need is more of an international solidarity between our people here in our country, the black brown people here who are exploited, who are being used by these capitalists in the country, in the country we live in, to garner some sort of international solidarity with the black and brown workers throughout the world. The blockade in Venezuela had a profound effect on the Caribbean. Venezuela shared its oil with the Caribbean under the most favorable terms, and that included Haiti. But with the blockade, that's no longer possible. And Haiti is ablaze. Yeah, I think in terms of the Caribbean and Venezuela's relationships to money, the Caribbean countries, I think what you see is an attempt particularly from Venezuela, an attempt at basically solidarity with South-to-South cooperation, South-to-South solidarity in, in ways that would have significantly benefited the both the Caribbean nations and Venezuela. However, with the United States blockade, of course, that leads to some significant problems on the part of Venezuela trying to aid these countries, trying to provide this cooperation. And then it, it also bounces back on societies themselves. So particularly if you look at Haiti, or Haiti right now, again, is another country in significant unrest with a huge national protest demanding that the president resign because the president has been extremely corrupt and and has been massacring his people. So in that respect, you know, the U.S. attempting to block and stop this aid from going to Haiti from Venezuela has caused significant social unrest, has caused significant social problems. And again, that's just another demonstration of how dangerous, how awful the U.S. empire is when it wants to be. 
Some months ago, we posted a marvelous picture on Black Agenda Report. It showed a crowd shot of the opposition in Venezuela and juxtaposed that with a crowd shout of the Chavista Party. And the racial differences were striking. The opposition party was almost all white, while the Chavista Party actually looked like the multicolored Venezuelan population as a whole. But here's the problem that I have. Whenever I ask Venezuelan government people questions that are related to the racial situation, they resist talking about the subject. Mm-hmm. And that's very frustrating because how can you expect to get solidarity from black people in the United States who are quite race conscious if you don't point mm-hmm. out the racial aspects of the transformation that is being attempted in Venezuela? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think just on the first point of the differences, yeah, I think there's a clear difference between the opposition and those who the Chavistas who support Maduro. The opposition clearly comes from a, a very different background, a, a rich and middle class white background, like you said, and it's starkingly different. Now, the fact that the Maduro government and some of the officials choose not to talk about that, I think is also somewhat problematic because, like you said, I think it does make it difficult to build that international solidarity and international class alliances between those who see the racial issues and those who, I guess, refuse to acknowledge them. But that being said, I do also think that the Venezuelan government overall has taken many steps to try to acknowledge the Afro descendancy that, that exists within the revolution. So they do a lot of work, particularly in building up cultural museums, acknowledging honoring and dedicating certain statues and monuments to Afro, to basically Afro-Venezuelan leaders, particularly Maroons, who basically were slaves who freed themselves and, and resisted against their slave owners. And so I think they're doing a bit more to try to link back to the Afro heritage as well as the indigenous heritage, yet they don't put too much emphasis on that. And I do think that is a, a bit of a problem. Now, it's very clear that China and Russia and other countries around the world would like to act in solidarity with Venezuela. But the U.S. dollar remains the reserve currency of the planet, and there's only so much they can do. What's the prospect for Venezuela to get through this blockade? Are they just going to tough it out? Well, I think what Venezuela is going to ultimately do is, again, like they're going to side more with Russia and China. They're going to lean more that way because those are the two countries who have open arms, who have been doing the most to help Venezuela. Uh, China has already sent tons and tons of aid, medical aid particularly, which has been extremely important because the United States, United States sanctions are, are killing all Venezuelans who desperately need uh, basic medical supplies. And Russia has been equipping Venezuela with different sorts of military materials and military weapons. So I think, you know, they're going to lean more towards that way. And what it seems like is going to happen is Venezuela is going to make attempts to tough out this part of the sanctions for as long as they can while Trump is still president and possibly be trying to look for a way to undo the sanctions if a new president gets elected, if that happens. And the only reason I say that is because, like I said earlier, the opposition has recently come out and taken a stance against the U.S. sanctions, U.S. blockade. So now both parties are completely against the sanctions and the blockade. Guaido has lost a lot of support and a lot of significance in Venezuelan politics. 
So we've seen basically the U.S. make an attempt to intervene in Venezuela, and now we've seen them fail. So the question becomes, what is the U.S. going to do next? What are the next steps? And it seems like they're still relying on these sanctions. Now, if the sanctions don't work after some time, I think that possibly with some hope there there might be a reverse in sanctions. I think really what we need is a different president who might be more willing to change that. But in terms of Venezuela, until those sanctions get basically lifted off the country, I think they're going to be working a lot more with China and Venezuela, particularly China, who's trying to basically create a whole new economic trade belt initiative connecting all kinds of countries in the global south, which is going to be a huge initiative, which significantly damaged the United States international power. I think in Venezuela right now, there's something that everyone can learn from. And that is that, first of all, movements are generated by the people and by people's power. So the only reason Maduro has actually been able to be in power isn't because of the military, isn't because of the fact that he's president. I think it's because of the fact that he has so much support from the Venezuelan people. And that if he did not have that support, what we would see is a nation that's been divided, similar to what we saw in Iraq, similar to what we saw in, in throughout the Middle East, nations that are divided against one part against the president, another part against are fighting for some other faction. And in order to avoid this factionalization, this divide and conquer tactic, which has been used you know, for decades now for, through U.S. imperialism, to stop the divide and conquer tactics, not only in other countries, but also domestically. We need to recognize that we need to have, you know, a collective people's power, essentially. People who can all agree that we're fighting the same fight and that this fight is an important fight. And I think that's really what's kept Venezuela alive. And that's something that all social activists can learn from, whether they be in the United States or whether they be elsewhere. That was Nicholas Evan Ayala, co-editor of the publication Anti-Conquista. Have abandoned black communities across the United States, forcing residents to eat badly or travel outside their neighborhoods to shop. Ashante Reese is a professor of anthropology at Spelman College in Atlanta. She's written a book titled Black Food Geographers Race, Self Reliance, and Fun Access in Washington, D.C. We asked Professor Reese how bad is the situation and what some people call food desert neighborhoods. Let me just say that we obviously didn't get here overnight. And one of the things that happens is because the food everyone eats, we kind of take it for granted a lot of times. And what I mean by taking for granted, I don't mean just the consumption of food, but for most people, we're not necessarily thinking about who produces our food, how it's being produced, how it's being distributed, anything like that. And so when we're alienated from processes, it is easy for those processes to become like really harmful, both to people and also to the planet, as we see in some ways related to climate change. So I just want to draw our attention to what happened in Mississippi at the chicken processing plant over the summer with ICE raiding that plant, looking for undocumented folk. When that happened, people were thinking through the lens of anti-immigration, which is absolutely true. That was totally an anti-immigration move. It was a scare tactic. It was all those things. But as a person who uses food as an analytic, one of the other things I thought about is why it's so important for us to know what's happening in our food system, because there are people who are risking their lives every day 
to be in these plants processing the chicken that we buy in the supermarket. So that's one part of it. There's this labor part that almost wholly goes unnoticed by most people. And then the second part is really thinking about the inequities that I write about, which is for some people, it is much harder to get to food than for others. And because we live in this in this country where meritocracy is the language of everything, everyone thinks that people get what they deserve, or if you worked hard enough, you would have more. And that's just actually not true, right? When we are mapping grocery stores and supermarkets, for example, you see how they're following these patterns of historical redlining, and that was by design. That had nothing to do with people's merit. What I'm interested in is making very visible the things that the average person may not be thinking about on a daily basis. We just know that people eat, but we are living in a time where a handful of corporations control nearly all of our food system, and that is pretty dangerous. Yes, the supermarket people must be conducting their own kind of redlining because, as you point out, black neighborhoods, even rather affluent black neighborhoods, still have lower access to food than white neighborhoods. Yeah, and so one of the things I like to point out because people always have questions about the how supermarkets decide where they want to be. I don't think that supermarket execs are sitting around the table looking at maps of neighborhoods and saying, oh, black people live here, so we don't, we're not going to put a store there. That's not necessarily, well, to my knowledge, someone might be having that conversation, but what they are having conversations about are around, oh, what percentage of the population in this area has a college degree? What percentage of the population in this area has an income above XYZ? Or how many two-parent households are in this neighborhood? All these things that intersect with race, right? Or they are also thinking about what other businesses are concentrated in these areas. And so, again, following the ways that businesses writ large, larger corporations I'm speaking of at this point, have avoided certain neighborhoods, particularly Black neighborhoods, especially post-1964, 65, 66, Supermarkets are kind of following that logic. And this is all part of how capitalism works, right? They say they're making decisions based on the market. And as a race scholar, I say that race and the market, they are intimately connected. The market isn't race neutral. So how do we get a food policy, a situation of food distribution that is in the public interest rather than based on corporate priorities? That is the question of the century, right? I want to lift up some folks who are doing some really great work. There's the Heal Food Alliance. There's the National Black Food and Justice Alliance. These are folks who are coalitions of organizations who are really thinking about that question and working collectively to think about how do we invest in community-owned and operated kinds of food spaces. How do we invest in Black people developing kind of self-determining food economies, but also questions around policy, right? Like when the Green New Deal, all of the stuff that people are talking about with the Green New Deal and how it impacts farmers and and how we're going to produce food. These are also folks who are thinking about, all right, we know that, for example, Black farmers have been discriminated against and now are only about 2% of farmers in the U.S., How do we have a racial equity lens that's part of this conversation, too? 
or you have these folks who are interested in co-ops, how do we pool together enough capital to have these community-owned co-ops that are like not the massive supermarket chains? On the other hand, while that is happening, while the policy stuff is happening, while the infrastructure stuff is happening, there is some education that we have to do amongst ourselves and really thinking about, this is where that unmasking of what's actually happening in our food system matters. When we know those things, I do think it equips us to make different decisions, right? I'm not, I don't think we should be policing people around the decisions that they make. I do think we should be thinking, how do we build community around understanding our food system and then like creating other possibilities? Because for about 95, 96% of people in the U.S., supermarkets are where they get their food. You said that you're looking forward to not using this term food desert anymore. Why do you want to get rid of that term and what would you substitute? So I I get this question a lot. I want to say that I am not the only person who critiques the term food desert. Obviously, I write about it in my book, but there are lots of other scholars and activists who critique this and have been critiquing it. So like if you look in the Movement for Black Lives policy platform, for example, they use the term food apartheid. Karen Washington also uses that term. She's a longtime farmer and activist, LaDonna Redmond. On the scholar side, there are people like Anaya Jones who critique that term, and then other people like Nathan McClintock who talk about racial capitalism. So for me, this is a conglomerate of all of us people who've been kind of thinking sometimes in our individual pockets, but certainly alongside each other with, with really thinking about, A, how the term has been applied and what hasn't been useful. So when people throw out food desert and, and especially how it's been used in U.S. policy so far, there is no racial analysis. There is no racial equity analysis. And the assumption is if we build it, they will come. So like often the forlorn conclusion is that we just need to have a supermarket and that's problematic in itself. And this is partly less about the term and more so how it's been applied. I think the other thing I want to say about food desert that I always often say is that in the focus on this product, i.e. a quote unquote desert, it totally obscures the way that people are already working within their communities, either to access food on their own, despite the failures of the state, or to create solutions within the community. And that's actually much more than what I'm interested in. I'm interested in looking at like, what are people actually doing rather than putting another label on black people that points to deficit rather than something that is productive. Yes, if the conclusion is that a black community just needs a supermarket and any supermarket, well then Walmart will do with its low wages and all the other ills that come with that brand. Yeah, and you know, Walmart is such an interesting case. It is complicated. And I will say this too, this relates to supermarkets generally. If you ask people who live in a neighborhood that doesn't have a supermarket what they want, what they want is a supermarket. And that, I think, is something that I want to be clear about, that even as we're trying to do this work around reimagining our food system, for example, there are still people with real needs. And I'm an advocate for people getting their real needs met. So that means that there are going to be some short-term kind of solutions and these kind of long-term, we're in it for the long haul. And a lot of those long-haul things 
have actually very little to do with food and more to do with how land policies, for example, how space is planned and how it's developed. All of these things are factor into like where food is located, where it's produced and where it's distributed and who is consuming what. So there are these like larger policies that really are part of the root um, in tandem with kind of food policies, but like policies of urban space in place, for example, like those things are really part of the root of the problem too. And of course, in terms of governmental policy, we can't overlook the constant long-term Republican war against food stamps. Yeah, well, you know, this country hates poor people. And I actually do not think that that's a partisan thing. I think when we look at policy over time and the kind of fluctuation and the constrictions and the assault against poor people, that happens across administrations. And that's an important thing to point out because, again, this is all wrapped up in this idea of meritocracy and American exceptionalism, right? And of course, it intensifies under different administrations for sure, but we don't actually have adequate safety net policies in this country for mostly anyone, but especially for poor people. I mean, the best safety nets are for wealthy people. Would you advocate a food bill of rights? I would like to know what you mean by a food bill of rights. Well, we talk about a bill of rights that includes right to housing. We already have, at least on the books, right to legal counsel. People talk about a right to have an effective education. Well, what about a right to food, but not just food in general? I see. I see what you're saying. I think that's something that I would have to think about, because there's this tension between we need some real policy changes, and I'm interested in that. But I think the question for me is always who's shaping the policy and what kind of language is used. So, for example, I wouldn't advocate for some kind of food bill of rights that had requirements or restrictions on what is considered healthy and what isn't considered healthy, right? That is all kind of tied up in a lot of ableist, fat phobic, and white supremacist ideas around health and healthiness. So I have some caution and some trepidation around that. What I will say is when we look at like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and it talks about food being a basic human right, I would love to see more exploration of what that actually looks like in practice in the U.S. and beyond. And I don't know what that looks like, right? But I do think that I do think that we do not take food seriously as a basic human right. You talk about the multiple functions of food stores, not just places where you go to get nutritious stuff to put in your mouth, Mm -hmm. but the connections that are made between people in the neighborhood. Yes. So I'm very interested in, again, the ways that stores function, but how people are connected to them. A lot of people have stores that they go to frequently. They may see the same people. They may have the same cashiers. And those relationships matter, even if they're not like the most important relationships in people's lives. It's kind of nice. Like when I lived in Virginia, I saw the same cashier at Trader Joe's almost every week that I went. And that was just a lovely experience for me. Now, from the corporate side, of course, They probably think about it as brand loyalty and store loyalty. But for me, it's also thinking about where are these spaces that you run into your neighbors, for example. 
and get a chance to chat with them. How are your kids? How are your grandparents? Like that kind of thing. Those spaces matter just as much as your home space, your worship space, if you have one of those, and your workspace. An absence of those, it is a really, that absence can be felt, even if people don't know it consciously. So the absence of food centers in Black communities is really a detriment to the overall quality of life beyond nutrition. Yeah, as I write in my book, or as I don't write in my book, I focus very little on nutrition, not actually at all. Because to me, whatever nutritional stuff that is happening is a byproduct of these larger processes. And so what I also write about in my book is you see all the ways that people are making lives and making joy outside of these corporate spaces. And I think that's equally important. Like people get together in their homes. People like me spent time in like small, small community store in the neighborhood, got to know people who came in there. So these spaces do exist outside of these large corporate spaces. And I don't want to overlook that. Like people are really, it's frustrating. And people, again, want to have the same kind of access that they would have in Georgetown. And at the same time, it is not necessarily stopping them from trying to build lives. One thing that I want to say is really a nuance around methodology in thinking about food access. And I I was just talking to a class of students about this yesterday. There are some people who study food because they are interested in nutrition, right? Or even they're interested in some form of inequities broadly, but they enter food to study food in and of itself in some ways. And that's not what I do. Food is a lens that I use to understand the ways white supremacy and anti-Blackness work in the U.S. I enter food through the lens of Black people and an interest in Black liberation and understanding that food is a large part of being able to be a fully functioning person who can dream, who can imagine, and who can create better worlds. So that's how I enter food. The reason I say that is because the way you enter a subject influences the kinds of things you're looking for and the kinds of outcomes. So when people read my book, sometimes they're very surprised that I'm writing about far more things that are less about consumption and more about how people are moving through the world and the role that food plays in that. And that's because my interest, I came into this through an interest in Black liberation and Black people. And that's the center and food is the vehicle through which I get to explore those things. That was Professor Ashante Reese speaking from Spelman College. Activists in New York City are trying to prevent the construction of four new prisons in the different boroughs of the city, designed to replace the jail cells that will be lost when the infamous Rikers Island jail is closed down. The No New Jails movement says now is the time to phase out mass incarceration, not to replenish it. Ben Induga Kabuye is with the Black Alliance for Just Immigration. There's over 50 cities that are building new jails, and one in particular in New York City, there's 12 new jails being built for $11 billion. And a decision to do that is happening literally in three weeks. They're going to build out a new Rikers-type complex, a Rikers 2.0, 
in black neighborhoods where there will be jails everywhere. And we're fighting that as part of a broader coalition called No New Jails NYC. And people can see more of our information on any social media site, No New Jails, on our website, nonewjails.nyc, because we basically put forward an agenda that says, as Khalif Brown has died, Laylee Polanco has died, people who are continually dying in Rikers and in other jails in New York City, there is, we are not an opportunity and we are able to close Rikers without building any more jails and use the $11 billion. It's not for jails, but for the needs of black communities. And this is part of coming out of Black August, that this is part of a, we're trying to be connected and rooted in the abolitionist tradition, that jails and policing are a product of enslavement and capitalism, and they do not make our community safe in any way, and in fact, increase violence in our neighborhoods. And we're more than able to close records without building any jails, especially since seven out of 10 people who are held in New York City jails are there just awaiting their trial. That was Ben Induga Kabuye of the Black Alliance for Just Immigration. Dante Mitchell is a prisoner of the state of New York. In this report for Prison Radio, Mitchell asked the question, what kind of society are we? I'm currently in the Bennington College Prison Education Initiative Program here at Great Meadow Correctional Facility. For those of you who don't know, Bennington College is a small school in Bennington, Vermont, from which Peter Dinklage graduated. You know him. Tyrion Lannister from Game of Thrones, The Dwarf. This semester, I am taking 20th century American literature, history of thought, enlightenment, and computer science. Shout out to all the Bennington College professors who take time out of their lives and go through the trouble to come into this terrible prison to educate some of us prisoners. That's no easy task. This facility isn't the best place to run a college program. When Bennington first got started here, participating prisoners were being relentlessly harassed and hassled. There is this attitude that we prisoners don't deserve a free college education when regular people must incur thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of dollars in student debt to get a degree. But I get it. It's really messed up regular people who are trying their best to get ahead must pay so much in student debt to earn a degree necessary to pursue a meaningful career. What really upsets me is how public education is being gutted. School districts across the country are cutting extracurricular activities like sports out of their budgets. And school teachers who don't get paid enough and who too owe student debts are forced to buy their own classroom supplies. What kind of society are we that we spend more money on prisons than on education? We pay sadistic prison guards and incompetent prison administrators more money than we pay public educators, yet public safety isn't enhanced by abusing mistreating, violating, or dehumanizing prisoners. In fact, many of us are in prison because of the terrible social policies that favor privileged white people, and this leads to poor public schools and poor communities, many of which are communities of color. Look, me getting a free college education isn't the reason your sons and daughters, or even you, have to be saddled with mounting student debt. We have a political and social institution that preys on the middle class and the working poor and pits us against each other. While you're mad at me for getting a free college education, you fail to recognize how corrupt corporate America is the one benefiting from keeping you in debt and keeping poor people of color like me incarcerated. We are natural allies if only you stop being so gullible to believe I am to blame for your problems. 
This is Dante S. Mitchell, better known as the Filemate Takibu, reporting to you from Comstock, New York. Follow me on Facebook at Free Dante Mitchell. Thank you for listening, and God bless. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.